Welcome to the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 104 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, The Right Take on Entertainment. This week we're speaking to John Levine, the media editor with TheRap.com. I've been following John on Twitter for a while now, and he's that rare, honest broker when it comes to Hollywood journalism. You'll soon learn why. This week's show is sponsored by Speakeasy Ideas. Here's a message for homeschooling families from Dr. Thomas Kronowitter, president of Speakeasy Ideas. You know, freedom is never more than one generation away from being lost, depending in large measure on how we free, how free citizens educate our kids. And while we have no shortage of problems in our modern U.S., the future is brighter and more hopeful due to the good work to which you've dedicated yourselves, teaching your kids. Speakeasy Ideas wants to be your partner for homeschool civic education. That's why we introduce a new online civics course, complete with curriculum, entitled The Political Science of the American Founding. This course will help your student become prepared for the rights and duties of being a citizen by learning the political science behind the great American experiment in constitutional self-government. The political science of the American founding is the result of my scholarly research and writing combined with years of experience teaching American government at Claremont McKenna College, Hillsdale College, and George Mason University. The materials included in the course have been selected, arranged, and packaged to supplement all kinds of curricula. You can easily modify these materials to be used for many learning levels, ranging from young students to high schoolers. To learn more about the new online civics class for homeschoolers, I invite you to go to speakeasyideas.com slash homeschool. That's speakeasyideas.com slash homeschool. And congratulations to you and your homeschooling children. And thanks again for your good work and your interest in a sound civic education. This week delivered another news story that speaks volumes about Hollywood coverage and why you can't always trust those headlines. Empire co-star Jesse Smollett said he was attacked in Chicago recently, an incident that smacks of racism and homophobia. Jesse is black and gay, and his two attackers allegedly assaulted him and screamed racist, homophobic insults while doing so. They allegedly tied a noose-like rope around his neck. Oh, and they could have thrown some bleach or some sort of acid-like substance on him, and all the while, they said that they were MAGA-loving Trump fans. This is MAGA country. That's according to what Jesse told the, the police. Now, that's a lot of information to unpack, and some of the story details don't really pass the smell test, and I want to mention a few of them just right off the bat. Now, the incident happened at 2 o'clock in the morning, and he said he was speaking to his manager at the time. Who talks to your manager at 2 o'clock in the morning? And why did his manager not immediately call the police? Because the manager said that he heard the entire incident happening while they were having that conversation. Did he do that? We don't know. Now, the two people who attacked him, what are they doing at 2 o'clock in the morning outside in one of the coldest Chicago winters in memory? Seems like an odd thing to do. Also, why did the actor initially refuse to turn over his phone to the police so they could check things out? Also, why did the actor say that the cops should turn off their body cameras when they entered his apartment building? And why was that noose-like rope still on his neck when the cops arrived? I mean, there are more questions here. That's just a few of the ones that jumped to my mind while researching this story. 
Now, it doesn't mean he made it up. This couldn't have exactly happened as he said it. But there are many key details here that are still blurry and undefined. The investigation continues. Yet the usual suspects, some reporters, some pundits, some Hollywood actors, they've already piled on the situation saying that it's all Trump's fault, not just the supporters of Donald Trump, but him himself for setting up this atmosphere. Now, all of this comes after maybe a week or so following one of the biggest media gaffes that I can remember, and they've committed quite a few. You know the story, the Covington kids. Well, the news media is at it again, going with their narrative over the facts, asking fewer questions and assuming that the narrative is true. We don't know yet. We may find out very shortly. It may be exactly what he said. Or this could be another hoax. We've seen more than a few of them in recent weeks. It's just what's going on in the culture these days. So you have to approach this with some skepticism and keep digging for the truth until you find it. Of course, media outlets don't learn. And Hollywood outlets are not not any different. They keep repeating the mantra. They keep leaving out key facts about this case because they really, really want it to be true just to attack the president and his supporters. Well, stay tuned to what's going on now. The truth may not be what you think. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. Hey, silly sandwiches with the crust cut off. Now, here's the hit tweet of the week. We took a week off last time. There's been a break in the action, but Bette Midler is back. She's on fire. And of course, as usual, it's hard to pick just one of her tweets to highlight this particular segment. But you know what? To me, this one really captures the heart and soul of the so-called resistance. Here we go. I was feeling a little low today and decided to cheer myself up with one of my favorite events of last year. Donald Trump's vandalized and abused Hollywood star, A Brief History property destruction is so cool unless it happens to your stuff right bet you're listening to the hollywood in toto podcast the right take on entertainment my hit tip of the week is fire it's one of two documentaries about the 2017 fire festival or should i say the disastrous fire festival That one-and-done event was supposed to be like Woodstock for some very rich people, but turned out to be a debacle, and that's putting it mildly. Now, the Netflix documentary really focuses on what happens, talks to a lot of the key players, and it is sensational. And by sensational, I mean it is a train wreck. You cannot look away. And I think this is the kind of documentary where just getting the facts and lining them up for our approval It's enough. I can't even tell if this is a great documentary or if just the material is so compelling, so insane that you just can't help but watch. You've got quirky characters in this one, a lot of wishful thinking and sheer blindness to the truth about what was happening. That is, here's a festival that was collapsing before their eyes. They couldn't keep their promises. It was very, very poorly planned and it turned out to be just a complete disaster But it kept going. No one blew the whistle. No one said, hey, we've got to stop. This is not working out as we planned. There are going to be thousands of people coming here expecting something that they're not going to get. 
it kind of is a snapshot of what's going on in our culture at the moment. A lot of this is on social media. A lot of the people pushing this particular festival were influencers, the people who have a large following and are able to kind of sway hearts and minds about certain events. Well, they were all in about this festival without knowing all the details. That's another fascinating part of the story. Now, Fire is available right now on Netflix. A competing documentary is on Hulu. I recommend the Netflix one because I've seen it, but boy, I want to watch both to see the full texture of the story. It's that amazing. I'm Patrick Corelci. And I'm Adriana Cortez. And we're the hosts of Red Pilled America, a new storytelling podcast. Red Pilled America is not another talk show covering the day's news. We are all about telling stories. Stories Hollywood doesn't want you to hear. Stories the media mocks. Stories about everyday Americans that the elites ignore. You can think of Red Pilled America as audio documentaries, and we promise only one thing, the truth. Visit the iHeartRadio app right now to listen to Red Pilled America. Now let's get to this week's HitCast interview. If you listen to this podcast or if you read my site, HollywoodandToto.com, you know I'm extremely critical of my fellow Hollywood reporters, and for good reason. They're not doing the job. But one reporter in my newsfeed really stands out. His name is John Levine. He's the media editor for TheRap.com. And both his stories and his Twitter feed are different. They're balanced. They're fair. And sometimes they're very critical of people on the left where a lot of his peers are dead stone silent. I knew I had to get him on the HitCast. And John didn't disappoint. Even better, he reveals how some of his fellow reporters don't take too kindly when he calls out people on the left side of the aisle. That's fascinating. But I think you're going to find out a lot more about both how John works and how the industry around him works. Pretty cool stuff. Here's my chat with the rap.com's John Levine. Well, John, thank you for joining the show. You know, I think slow news days are just a thing of the past at this point. I, I kind of feel that with all the work that I do. I'm sure you do too. How has that impacted your daily routine? How do you kind of process this sort of rat-a-tat news uh, when you're working with the rap.com? Well, it's funny, you know, I haven't really ever lived in a universe where Donald Trump was not a <laughs> gigantic part of the news cycle because in, in terms of my working career, because I haven't honestly been doing this. I'm not like, you know, Tom Brokaw here. I've, I, right, right. you know, I, I kind of got my first full time gig in the United States. I started overseas, but in the United States in 2015. So, I mean, there was a couple of months and then Trump made his announcement. And then basically it's been the Trump show ever since. So I've never <laughs> known a slow news cycle. Um, I, 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 I don't even know what it would be like to, <laughs> but, um, I imagine it'd be boring. You know, I think that we live in very, very exciting times. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's, we live in an incredible time for journalism and to, to write about journalism. And that includes, you know, covering Trump, but also, you know, all the different people around Trump and, you know, the responses to Trump. And, you know, in, from my case, I cover media and journalists and media organizations. So it's, it just, you know, that used to be a very sleepy beat, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, who, I mean, media reporter 2010, you know, what's going on here? It's become, you know, the president has sort of elevated media to the center of the conversation because he is someone who watches Fox News, mm-hmm. you know, six, seven, eight hours a day. And it's it's a, it's a huge part of his life. Yeah. And he's forcing it to become a huge part of all of our lives. Do you find that as a reporter that you are always 
sort of kind of on the clock where maybe it might be a weekend, it might be where you're sort of technically off work, but you see something across your Twitter feed and, and you kind of you want to jump in or you have to jump in. I mean, how, did, how does it impact you that way? Yeah. I feel that Oh, way. absolutely. I'm never not working. <laughs> I mean, even when I'm not typing out, you know, articles, I'm always looking. Right, right. And I'm always, you know, and, and, and you know, I'm not always at a computer, but I'm always sending it. To, I'm like, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to get on this. And, you know, nine times out of 10, it's me, but I'm I'm always working. I don't, you know, I, I regret that I have to sleep. <laughs> you know, it's if I didn't, I wouldn't. I love it. Gotcha. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of journalism in recent months and even years. Uh, what do you what do you see in the landscape that you're saying, you know what, this is a good thing. This is something that I, I think is a, a great part of the 21st century news cycle as opposed to, I, I mean, we can kind of go on and on about the what's gone wrong, but any sort of positive things you see as a, oh, as a fairly yeah. young reporter kind of covering the news? I think this is like one of those old sort of hackneyed journalism points, but it's really true. The, the growth of personal recording devices, you know, you know, whether that, you know, I'm thinking like phone cameras, mm-hmm. but really there's, you know, there's a lot of different things in that universe. It's empowered people. It's been it's, you know, before all news was filtered from a very top down corporate, you're watching the television, you're reading the newspaper, you know, technology has evolved to a point now with the Internet and with with cameras and with cell phone video where you can be you can be this. You can you can get the story out. And, you know, a lot of times, as we've seen, you know, the gigantic media companies don't always tell the full story. And, you know, I mean, for example, we had we had a great situation now where. A tiny snippet of video was viral of uh, the, the Covington, you know, Catholic students incident that took over our lives for like 10 days, which we're just getting out of now. And that's an example where, you know, top down media reacted to a small viral clip that and, you know, the sort of broader nuances of that story only came about after, you know, longer video from other people began surfacing. But there was no CNN camera crew there. There was right. no NBC Fox News camera crew there. It was a story that, you know, the, the full record of the story only came out because individual people were filming and 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 got it out. And, you know, people that story is one of those things where 10 different people can look at the same footage and see 10 different things. Yeah. And it's 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 really remarkable. It's a very Rashomon type situation. It's it is very remarkable. When you think that in recent years, you've heard, uh, I'm sorry, recent days, there's been BuzzFeed layoffs, other, like you know, HuffPo has had some hits as well. And of course, journal, uh, you know, newspapers have been suffering for years now. Uh, do you, are you hopeful for journalism in the future? I mean, not just what you just mentioned, but I, I guess from a, you know, outlets that can survive and thrive in this current climate, it seems harder than ever. You know, the ad revenue has kind of gone away yeah. for a lot of papers. Do you see, I, I'm hoping that the rap is sort of successful and, and viable for, for the foreseeable future but but even looking beyond your outlet do you, are you hopeful or are you concerned what, what's your take on what's going on there well i think that a lot of media companies hired a lot of people over the years on expectations of future growth that never necessarily panned out and and now actually those growth figures are retreating and you know that's what spurred the recent waves of consolidations and uh, mergers and, and bringing together of media companies to form larger operations, you know, pool our resources to get through it. So, I mean, the expectations of the early internet, you know, when we had blogging and when HuffPost was just starting and, and, and those things, they haven't really panned out in terms of the actual dollars. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of 
VC money out there willing to take a, you know, to to drop more money into the next BuzzFeed because of that. So, um, I, I mean, it's kind of inevitable that we reach this point. It's, it's obviously always very, very sad when journalists lose their job. Journalism is very, very important for our country. Um, you know, we've BuzzFeed and HuffPost, you know, you know, you can take issue with individual pieces they've done and 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 this controversy or that controversy but broadly speaking they're they're you know indispensable parts of the media landscape and they've they've done some some fabulous reporting and it's a terrible thing when so many people get laid off and you know i i know many many fabulous people at both of those companies who i'm sure will go on to find new gigs somewhere but it's a very challenging environment and i don't necessarily see it getting better in the short term mm-hmm. But in the long term, I mean, you know, if you can figure out a business model that brings us back to the days when companies like Gannett were turning around 40 percent profits, <laughs> you should get a Nobel Prize. That's right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny. You mentioned uh, part of the layoffs. And I, I think it was you had maybe even this morning had retweeted this or commented on Twitter punishing people for saying, learn to uh, code to ex-journalists. That's uh, right. Oh, I'm glad you're talking about this. Yeah. That, that, that's literally – yeah, I, I can't. I'm not going to reveal the person mm-hmm. who told me that, other than to say that it's an it's a rock solid person. But that's <laughs> a big story because all it is is a, a a kind of a a snark. It's certainly not out of love and respect, but that's not exactly a sentiment that I should think would be banned by a, a, an outlet like Twitter. Right. Well, and, Twitter I mean, always. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Continue. I would say that I, I feel like there's such a double standard there because I've read the worst, most hateful things on Twitter from accounts that are thriving, and other people are saying that they're getting kind of censored for that. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because I feel like you call those situations out where other reporters are not. So dig a little deeper here. What's what's going on? Well, Twitter is just fundamentally always nobody likes Twitter really. I mean, like we all use it, we but everyone's upset with it. Conservatives hate it because they think they're being shadow banned and they think there's double standards. And liberals hate it because they say it's it's not sort of censoring enough content. They want more people banned, more, you know, you know, uh, you know, webs of content, you know, shut down. So everyone is sort of fighting over Twitter and what it should be. And, and it's and everyone is saying it doesn't enforce its rules properly. And, you know, there's valid criticisms on both sides. But it's very, very important, I think, with Twitter to and this is a broad theme of my life, which is to hold everybody accountable to the same standard. Mm-hmm. And everyone, you know, and it's like if, if you would have been upset about X, you should be upset about when Y is doing it and vice versa, even if Y is on your side. Right, right. And this is a principle that's very, very close to my heart. And I can't speak for any of my colleagues at other outlets. That seems but like I a very say, basic tenet of being a journalist. Yeah. And I don't see that very common across right. the, uh, the landscape. Well, it's tough. Tribalism is a very powerful force. We, you know, I, I will tell you the number of journalists who are just reacting to, to that tweet in a very like, you, you know, just saying this can't be true. This isn't true. This is false. You know, and I don't understand. It's like it, it is true. And people are demanding I release my source, which obviously I'm not going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. I don't know. People feel very strongly about the news and about what's in the news. And I think that sometimes allows people to tweet out things that they later regret or to cover or not cover certain stories. I think that, you know, the biggest editorial bias is not what you cover. 
It's what you choose to ignore. Mm -hmm. You know, that is says much more about a publication than what they actually put out. And I want to get and, to that you know, in you a can, moment, by the way. That's a really key yeah. point. But keep going. I'm sorry. You can read, you know, like let's look at a publication like Breitbart for a minute. You know what Breitbart is about. The stories you'll see on Breitbart today are broadly accurate. You're not going to be able to look at that and say, that's fake news. This is false. It's accurate. It's it's just what makes Breitbart a right-wing site is is that they choose not to cover whole mm -hmm. areas of, of news that would be contrary to the broader narrative that they want to put out. And I say Breitbart because I'm not picking on them. It's just they're the most sort of salient example. All news organizations, or almost all, to some extent, sort of suffer from these institutional biases and, you know, where reporters all kind of are hired who believe a certain way of thinking and put out content that only reinforces that narrative. And you see, you, you, have, a, you have a belief in your mind of how you believe the world is, and you produce stories only that confirm your pre-existing beliefs and not that would necessarily challenge those beliefs or the beliefs of your audience. Yeah, it's one of the things that I, I try to do and I don't, I don't think I'm always successful is if I see a story that is, seems too good to be true that favors my ideology, I want to pounce. I try not to immediately. I try to double check it or check the source or find out more context or if it's why isn't other people reporting on it, that kind of thing. But it's true. I, I want to talk a little bit. There's a, a recent Atlantic piece on uh, director Brian Singer, which is pretty devastating. And uh, from what I understand, it was spiked by Esquire and then went on to the being published in Atlantic. And it reminded me of the, the Weinstein case where there were stories floating around. Other uh, Some sources didn't run it. Then it w was eventually published. What is that saying about the Hollywood press? Or, or is that even saying there were more demons in the Hollywood closet than we even realize at this point? Well, I, I think you're never wrong. You'll never lose money betting that there are more demons in the Hollywood closet. <laughs> okay. But, um, you know, I don't know. Because, you know, you have to, you have to if, you, if you read, if you read what they, the Esquire reporters said in a statement, which I believe Atlantic put out, that they had the story and then executives at Esquire, I guess their parent company is Hearst, killed it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I mean, like, I, I reached out to Esquire Hearst multiple times. I never heard anything back. They kind of have just not addressed it, at least to me. But, I mean, from the available evidence, it would seem that it was kind of like an NBC Weinstein situation where there is... There have been allegations, which at least to me appear, appear credible that, you know, there was pressure brought to bear. And, you know, it's it's, you know, with respect to Singer, certain allegations or certain whispers about Singer had been out for a while before this piece. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Many, many. Years and ago. it it's like that to me is notable too. The, the the length of time that everybody whispered to the time the piece was finally published. There were whispers about Harvey for a very, very long time before the piece was finally published. And I think the reason, if you look at why, well, why does it take so long to go from whispers to final product? There's probably, and I don't know this, but there's probably a lot of behind the scenes sausage making mm -hmm. from publicists and flax. And I'm sure it'll all come out. You know, there's been subsequent Weinstein reporting uh, detailing his efforts to derail coverage of, of that story has been fabulous and it's yeah. been thorough and we've learned a lot more than we knew a year ago yeah no i'm, I'm glad it all came out but it's in it's sort of the behind the scenes is almost as fascinating as the horror stories that went on literally in hollywood i want i want to call out one specific headline of a piece you wrote recently uh film producer jack morrissey apologizes for a deleted covington wood chipper tweet 
D- yeah. Disney producer, pretty, pretty big name behind the scenes. We don't know him. I, he's not in like a Spielberg, for, you know, but he said something pretty horrible and he apologized. Yeah. That story was nowhere. It was only on the right of center sites and you and the rap wrote about it. And it reminded me of Ellen Barkin, who recently said that, kind of su- strongly suggested that Trump should die. And she also said that Louis C.K. should be raped and shot at. And I'm thinking, this goes back to your point. I, I wanted to kind of revisit it. What outlets don't cover is almost more powerful when they would do because those are stories to me i mean i think i feel like every other day there's a story about a a celebrity saying something silly on twitter embarrassing herself or himself on twitter and that makes the rounds but to me an actress like ellen barkin who's you know a veteran saying something that horrible i think that's news and i don't see it and i I just because because i think you're fair i want you to talk about it what's going on there you know i just I, I can't explain the editorial processes of other companies. I can only say for myself, when I see someone say that a bunch of you know 15-year-old kids should be put into a wood chipper <laughs> because you, you took exception to, to, their, to their behavior, which was not – you'd say it was bad. It was not criminal. It was – and – it just it's one of those things where that's obviously a red flag for me when it's a it's a major Hollywood producer and um, or a major public figure. I don't know why that wouldn't be a red flag to other people, but it's it's sad. And I mean, in terms of the Hollywood trades, maybe there's an access issue. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I'm not an access guy. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big that's a big part of me, at least, because I don't worry about cocktail parties. I don't worry about events. I don't, I don't, I, I'm not, this is not something I care about. Right. I'm like the anti, I mean, I go to them. It's funny. I don't actually lose access, even though I'm a very mean person to everybody. <laughs> I've never actually been punished from an access point of view, but I think that a lot of people do sometimes worry about relationships and access. And mm-hmm. it's an unfortunate part of the industry. And you see it at the very highest levels of journalism with things like the White House Correspondents Dinner, where you're supposed to be covering these people and, and being, you know, the press, the hard hitting press. And then meanwhile, you're, you're yucking it up and drinking cocktails. And it was very evident during the Obama years <laughs> um, that access journalism blunted the capacity of, of good reporting. Mm-hmm. I, I want to follow up on this. Uh, I follow a lot of entertainment reporters on Twitter. And from what I could see, they're all left of center. It just, I can, it's, it's pretty obvious. And I think the ones that aren't are from like the Washington Free Beacon, which is obviously a right of center site. And, and I have no right. problem with people like if, if Mother Jones has an entertainment reporter and he or she is, you know, left of center, I, that's, what, that's what they're there for. But, you know, we talk a lot about diversity and, and Hollywood, I think, is doing a better job of late of getting more voices on the screen and getting more representation. But I got to say, when, when it comes to Hollywood coverage, I don't know if there's a single right of center reporter kind of working the beat. I mean, it, is, do we need that? I mean, I'm not I'm not one for uh, quotas by any stretch, but right. I think I think you're I think they're missing out on stories. I, there, there's one fellow, uh, Paul Bond, the Hollywood Reporter, who has sort of a, seems to have his finger on the pulse of right of center stories. But beyond that, I don't know if I can mention anyone. And, and again, this is why I'm talking to specifically you because I think you've been very fair in your coverage, but I don't see it elsewhere. Well, I think broadly in newsrooms, you know, we hear a lot about diversity and diversity is very, very important and we need more diversity in newsrooms. But the one, you know, element of diversity that you never, ever hear about is ideological diversity. People of a full range of opinions on beliefs, on, you know, things. And that is the diversity that never gets talked about. 
Um, but I would I would push back against the need for more center right reporters per se. I don't I don't I don't I don't want to live in a world where we have center right and center. I mean, I just want to live in a world where you just call it what you see it. And I always say I try to be mean to everybody because <laughs> if I was only mean to some people, I would have no credibility. So I, you know, I treat the lefties like Fox News and I treat the right wing types like MSNBC and it's worked for me. Mm-hmm. And I will say that there are, you know, it, it's when fe- when feathers are ruffled, I will say that there's a large class of people online and entertainment and Hollywood and wherever I go that are not used to um, a certain level of aggression from the press. And that's where I get the most pushback hmm. because, you know, there's there's a lot of people who have developed relationships or are on the right side that don't get a lot of scrutiny usually. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, after the Covington stuff, it was like coming in after a huge rainstorm and all this this garbage was swept up on the beach. And I was just picking it up like, oh, this one said they should die. This one said they should be doxxed. This one wants them put into a wood chipper. And no other media people were really covering all of the gross excesses of this thing. You had a CNN guy say that they should be punched in the face. CNN still not responded <laughs> to that. And they're just going to just sort of put down the memory hole and never speak of it again. But, you know, I, I felt like I was, we were just overflowing with news items about overreach from reporters and media and journalists. And there just wasn't a lot of people on my beat looking into it. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, does the rap, I I, I imagine that they embrace the kind of work you do and that they, they don't mind the fact that you're kind of hitting both sides. What, what kind of, I mean, this is too personal and inside baseball, but they've been supportive of your approach to journalism. And the rap is extremely supportive of my work and I love working there. And, you know, they it's I think, you know, they they're very they recognize that there's there are these sort of lapses and holes in 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 the media landscape. And they've been very, very supportive of my, you know going after everyone approach and I mm-hmm. couldn't speak more highly of, of gotcha. them. Gotcha. But you kind of mentioned that before that some of your fellow people on Twitter, is it reporters who kind of give you a little little heat when you kind of dig into the places you dig or is it just sort of general? You know, I, I, it's amazing how many reporters forget that they're reporters <laughs> <laughs> when news comes out that they don't like. Uh-huh. So I, you mentioned the tweet I just put out. I have people from the Atlantic. I have people from NBC being like, this is false. This is fake news. Who's your source? Reveal your source right now. And I want to be like, guys, this is not how that works. I mean, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, of course I'm not. And people coming right into my direct messages. I'm not going to name names. Mm -hmm. And people who are so nasty to me publicly and then come into my direct messages and apologize. Wow. And say, oh, you know, I got a little overheated. You're right. Uh Meanwhile, meanwhile, they trash me publicly. But that's fine. I'm not going to – we don't need to name any names. But it happens. Yeah. Regularly. Listen, in this day and age, someone who actually apologizes is a plus. So we, can, we can build it Right. Well, that's that. a whole other – the <laughs> weaponization of apologies is that's a whole right. other can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> I have one last question for you. I, we're just into 2019, and I know you're more on the media side than Hollywood, but I'll kind of sprinkle it in both ways. What do you see happening in this year? Are there any sort of – trends that are just starting to emerge you, any sort of things you can kind of predict based on the work you do that we'll see throughout the year anything like that you know it's crazy we're only like 28 days 27 days into this year i mean i i i, I mean i i wish i could give you a positive answer to that question i see a lot of like doom and gloom and paywalls mm-hmm. i see 
more and more content going behind paywalls, subscription only. I see more and more websites shutting down. I see more and more websites coming under the control of single owners, whether it be Penske or Brian Goldberg here in New York. Um, I, I see, unfortunately, you know, websites like yours facing increasing difficulty in monetizing um, just, you know, and, and, in, and in getting eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Um, I see uh, a, a landscape that is still totally ruled by social media and Google and the rest of us kind of tap dancing around their every wish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I don't see anyone winning the Nobel Prize for solving the business model dilemma, which we discussed earlier. Yeah, yeah. But that, that is a complicated issue. But, uh, well, listen, I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, John, thank you for joining the HitCast. You can read John's work at therap.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Levine Jonathan. I'll have all those links at the show notes page. And, again, keep up the great work. I, like I said, I, I saw you on Twitter and, and saw some of your comments. And I thought, this sounds really fair and honest, and someone – not doing what everyone else is doing. So that's why I had you on the show, and I I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for, and done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and done. Switched to a better plan. And Michael. I met with a local licensed insurance agent face-to-face and done. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to compare top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.